Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. So as we study the, the, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was at Rome in the first century, what we have is we have Paul taking us limb by limb up probably the greatest tree that ever existed in the history of humanity, this tree uh, that we call the Book of Romans. And so when I say limb by limb, he is systematically uh, helping us understand what it means to be a Christian. And so as we climb it, we are seeing what Christianity is, what God had in mind. We're also eating of its fruit as we go and coming into an understanding of what these things mean in our lives. And we're also, as we climb, uh, obtaining a viewpoint. We're seeing, as we climb, uh, all of life from the perspective of what it means to be a Christian. And so we're seeing ourselves, we're seeing the world, we're seeing the kingdom of God, we're seeing invisible things, we're seeing all of these things through the context of all that God has done as we come into this understanding. And so he brought us through the lower limbs of understanding that we're sinners, that apart from the work of Christ, we are absolutely separated from God, that we are born into this world spiritually dead, though we are soulishly active and bodily alive, we're completely cut off from God. And so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he brought us through that to the understanding that it's through Jesus Christ that we have been made right with God. And so thus now we're saved and we're in a relationship with him. We've been redeemed and our spirits are now alive. He then took us through the middle branches of chapters 6 and 7, where we're learning about this concept of sanctification. The process of God now changing us on the inside, removing the self, crucifying the self and the sin of the old, and conforming us now into the image of his son Jesus, and bearing forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit within our lives, this process that happens as we grow, as we come to know him, as we walk with him, he's changing us day by day. Though our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. And now we come to chapter 8, which in a sense brings us to the higher branches and really the highest branches of this tree. And it begins with the declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. That because of the blood, because we're adopted, because we belong to him, we are no longer condemned. God has moved us into a position of righteousness in Christ that cannot be undone. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And a part of that glory that we now receive is that God has given to us his Holy Spirit. The eternal essence of who he is is not just with us, but he's in us. And thus by his spirit now, he's given us power to live the new life. He doesn't call us to try as hard as we can. 
He calls us to yield to him and allow him to live this Christian experience through us. Thus, we're, san- we're being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit that's now in us, working these things out of our life. He's also given us his spirit, which he calls the spirit of adoption. Meaning that we're not just given this power now, but we're given fellowship with him. We have access to him. We sense his presence with us, his reality. There's an adoption and a walking with. And he also gives us his spirit, and this is where we left off, who prays in us. It says that the spirit helps our weaknesses because we don't know what to pray for or how to pray as we ought. But the spirit inside of us prays for us through our groanings, when we can't even come up with words and don't even know how to pray, God interprets those groanings. And the reason why God can do that is because the Spirit searches all things and He knows the will of God. And because the Spirit is God, knows us and the will of God, the Spirit can pray through us and God can interpret those groanings and He can hear them as His prayers. Now, The immediate context of where we resume in chapter 8, verse 28, this verse where it says that we know that all things are working together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called in Christ Jesus, according to his purpose. The context of this verse is in the context of suffering. That's what he has just spoken to us in the verses that were preceding it. He told us back up in uh, chapter 8, in the earlier part of the chapter, back over in verse uh, um, 17, it says that if we are children of God, then we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And he introduces this concept of the suffering of the Christian life, the reality of suffering in the experience of the Christian. And basically what he's saying to us is that, listen, if Jesus suffered and was glorified, and we are joint heirs with him, then it stands to reason that we, though we will be glorified in the future, there is an element of suffering that we experience now. We all understand that. We all know what it means because we live in this life. And so we understand that, yeah, we do suffer in the world. But what Paul says concerning these sufferings is he says that the sufferings of this present time, this world, this life, that they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, though there is suffering accompanying our Christian experience now, The glory that we'll experience on the other side of those sufferings is so exceedingly great that it can't even be compared on the same scale. Meaning you put the glory on one side of a scale, you put the sufferings on the other. it's, It's an imbalance. You need a different type of scale to measure the two things. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that the sufferings of this present life have a value to them, a worth to them, in that they're producing something that has an eternal payoff. That is, the sufferings and the trials, the temptations and the difficulties that we go through in this life are actually servants to our future glory. They are serving us in some way, producing in us something that is coming yet for the future. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here, is that these sufferings that we're in, part of the fallen world, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So now he connects the context of that, the sufferings that we go through as Christians, to one of the greatest promises, if not the greatest promise that's given in the entirety of the Bible, found in verse 28. That we know that all things are working together for the good of those that love God to those that are the called according to his purpose. Now you think about the greatness of that promise, that all things are working together for the good. That's an expensive promise. You almost think, God, did you mean to say that when you put that in the Bible? Was that a mistake? I mean, to say that all things are working, to, to make God, in a sense, a servant to his word, because God's word will never not be fulfilled. Well, God, do you really mean that when you say that all things work together for the good? I mean, don't you mean to say that most things work? I mean, don't you want to give yourself an out there a little bit? To say that most things work together for good or that some things work together for good? Or, or maybe, God, what you really mean when you say that is that you're saying that the spiritual things work together for the good. Or the God-ordained things that happen in our lives. Doesn't there have to be some kind of a qualifier in that statement? Do you really mean, God, that all things work together for good? That's what it says, isn't it? That's exactly what it means. God is saying that all things work together for our good. Now, what does all mean? All means everything. So that means every circumstance, every factor in a given circumstance, the time and the timing of the events and the actions and things that happen in our lives. The situations that vary by, you know, circumstance, all of those situations, all of the victories, the defeats and struggles, the tragedies and setbacks, the interruptions to our plans, the roadblocks that stand in our way, changes, voluntary or involuntary, things that involve the free will of other people. Things that involve governments and authorities outside of our influence or power. Literally every single factor that defines or influences a situation falls under the banner of all. All things. Meaning every little detail of something that happens. The time that we live in human history. The outside events that influence the time that we live in human history. All things in every circumstance, God is working together for good, for his good, for our good, to those that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. Now, he does not say here, and it's important to understand, he does not say that all things are good. You know, we use that phrase sometimes. We say, well, it's all good, right? <laughs> you know, it's all good, you know? But it's not all good, is it? I mean, some of the things that happen to us are bad. You know, they're pretty terrible things. Some of the things that happen in the world that directly affect Christians, they're not good things. They're, not, they're bad things. And bad things do happen. And God doesn't say that bad things aren't going to happen or that bad things are good. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that all things are working together for our good. 
Meaning that no matter what it is, God is able to take it, even if it's a mistake that we make, even if it's a sin that we commit, God is able to turn that around and by his power, he's able to redeem it and cause those things to become a servant to our future good. All things are working together for our good and that's what God is saying. Now it's interesting that the, the, that the um, passage opens by saying that we know. Do you see those two words there? It says that we know that all things work together for good. And you say, well, I'm not sure that I know <laughs> that all things work together for good. But Paul says that we know it. Now, it's an interesting word that's used there in the Greek language. It, it is not the word gnosis. Now, most times in the New Testament, when you see the word know, K-N-O-W, it's translated gnosis. And what gnosis is, is an internal knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's the deepest form of knowledge. It's just knowing something in the deepest place where you just know that you know that you know that you know. And that's not the word that he uses here, gnosis. It's actually the word, I, I actually think I forgot to write down what the actual word in the Greek is uh, where it says to know. But what it literally is, you could look it up. It's a four-letter word. I remember that. But what it means literally is to see or to know. And it's translated in both of those two ways in the New Testament, this word. More times it is translated to see than it is to know. But they're about equal. I think 178 times it's translated to see. And then 168 times it's translated to know. And so it means both of those things. It's to observe, and then it's to come to a knowledge of or a perception of something. So to see it, to observe it, and then to know it. And what Paul is saying here is that we see and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. And I think it's interesting because I think it happens in that order, in that progression. I think the first thing that happens is that we see that all things come together or work together for good. And then as we see it, we come to a place where then we know it, where there's a deeper understanding of the thing and not just by observation. You say, well, what do you mean? How does this work out? Well, we see it. There it is, right? We see it working out this way with God's people all the way throughout the redemptive history of God from the beginning all the way through to the end. We've been studying Abraham on Wednesday nights, and we're seeing that Abraham, in a time of famine, now we wouldn't say famine is a good thing, right? Famine is a bad thing. There was suffering, there was anxiety, there was loss. It was a bad thing that happened. In that time of famine, he was tempted to go down to Egypt and take his life back into his own hands, which he did. So a bad famine was followed by a bad decision. He abandoned the plan of God and he took his life into his own hands. While he was there, it was followed by subsequent bad decisions as he lied to the Pharaoh, lost his wife into her harem, made an absolute spectacle and fool of himself in being found out and caught in his lie, and he was sent out of Egypt with his tail tucked between his legs in great shame because of his complete and utter failure. And you say, well, that was really bad. And it was bad. But God redeemed it and worked it all together for his good because no sooner did he come up out of Egypt and reconsecrate his life to the Lord that the wisdom of those failures was applied to his understanding and he never made those mistakes again and his character was elevated to a point where he was greatly profited by those failings. God trumped the bad and worked it together for good in the life of his servant, Abraham. And through those failures, he became the man that he became. 
those failures and the others, God working those things together for the good. We think of the son of, or grandson of Abraham, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob being the grandson. And Jacob, after he had made a mess of his life in the early years through his trickery, his deceitfulness, and his craftiness, he ends up being exiled up to Paddan Aram, a land way up in the north, never seeing his mother again because of his lie and the treachery or trickery that he deceived his brother Esau with. And upon then returning to the land and having the family and now being established in all of those things, his son Joseph, being hated by their brothers, is thrown into a pit and sold as a slave into Egypt. The 11 brothers that survive him, or 10 at that time, bring the, the bloodied coat of Joseph to their father Jacob and they say, hey, is this your son's coat? We found it in the field. He was probably killed by some wild beast and Jacob thinks that his son is dead. Now, is that good or bad? It's a bad thing, right? To lose a child or to think that you lost a child and it tore his heart out. He never recovered from that. It broke him to see that his favored son Joseph was a wreck. The famine then comes. And he finds himself in a similar situation to his grandfather, Abraham, where his flocks are beginning to die, his people are beginning to starve, and he's got no solution or remedy. Now, that's not good. That's bad. Now he's in a famine. So he hears that there's corn in Egypt, so he sends his ten sons down to Egypt to try to buy corn from the governor there who's selling it to people at his discretion. But when the ten sons come and they don't realize that it's Joseph who's the one that's selling the corn, Joseph sees them, accuses them of being spies, takes Simeon as a prisoner and tells the other nine to go home and bring your youngest brother Benjamin down here. And when I see your youngest brother Benjamin, then I'll know you're telling the truth and I'll set them free. And so they go back home and they tell Jacob, hey, Simeon's in jail. They want to see Benjamin. And Jacob slams his fist on the ground and he says, Joseph is dead, Simeon's in prison, now they want Benjamin, my youngest, and he declares in negative pessimism. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 36, he says, all these things are against me. That's what he said. Joseph is not, Simeon they've taken, now they want Benjamin, all these things are against me, he said. As in anxiety and faithless lack of trust, he said, all these things are working together for my bad. That's what he said. The reality of the situation is that all those things were working together for his good. The reality of the situation is that Joseph was, in fact, alive. That Simeon was perfectly safe that Benjamin's future was going to be established, that Joseph was preserving the entire tribe alive and becoming a picture of the savior of the world, having saved the world from the famine of its day, and that Jacob was in the process of fulfilling the promise of God that had been given to him. He was in the process of becoming Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was working it all to the good, but he couldn't see it at the time. He didn't know it. He thought all these things are against him. Joseph was abandoned by his brothers. That's bad. He was sold as a slave. That's bad. 
He was raised up in Potiphar's house. That's good. Then he was falsely accused by his wife of rape. That's bad. He was then thrown in the prison. That's bad. He was elevated in the prison because of his diligence. That's good. Then he was forgotten by the chief butler and the chief baker. That's bad. Ultimately, in the process of time, the Pharaoh dreams. Joseph is brought in before him. He interprets the dream. And in one day, all of the bad that Joseph thought he had suffered was worked together for good when Joseph himself found himself with Pharaoh's ring upon his finger, a chain around his neck, a crown upon his head, riding in the second chariot. Through all the bad experiences that Joseph had suffered in the earlier years of his life, he had learned, first of all, how to run an agrarian system in an Egyptian context. Oh, that was going to be necessary for his future plan, wasn't it? He also learned how to run a government organization. Oh, that was going to be necessary for his future place as the prime minister, wasn't it? He also learned the criminal mind being in the jail and learning how people think, talk, wheel and deal, connive and strive. That was going to be necessary for his future glory, wasn't it? God took every bad thing that Joseph thought he was suffering. God turned it around and worked it together for good for Joseph's future glory and God's greater purpose. He works all things together for good. And Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, has the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Because when his brothers come and say, Joseph, we are so sorry for what we did to you, we didn't understand. Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. He saw it. Now he knows it. It went from sight to mind to heart. He works all things. Now, we could go through the whole entire Bible, and we could look at this over and over and over and over again, and we would see how every bad works together for good in the context of God's greater plan and God's love. Now, we can see it, right? We just looked at three examples, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And in our mind, we can think about David, we can think about Esther, we can think about Daniel and his friends. We can go through the entire Bible and we can say, yeah, I can see it. But do we know it? Do we really know that God works all things together for good? Notice that there's two conditions on this promise. He says, we know that all things work together for good. But then he says, to them, so it's conditional, and then the two conditions are, number one, to those who love God, and then condition number two, and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So to those who love God, all things are working together for good to those who love God. The word love there is the word agape. Now we all know, I hope, that there are more than one, there is more than one word that, that is translated love in the Greek language, in the Bible language. There is the Greek word eros, which is an erotic, sensual type of love. That's not the word that's used here. There is the word storge, which means friendship. That's not the word that's translated or used here. There is also the word phileo, which means brotherly love. That's not the word that's used here. And then there is finally the word agape, which means unconditional love by choice a parental type of love. 
And that's the word that's used here. It says that all things are working together for good for those who love or agape God. Now, the biggest difference between agape love and any other kind or form of love is that agape love is a love by choice, not by feeling or any other factor. I am choosing to love. It's an unconditional love based upon a decision that I've made that I'm going to love. Now, in order to agape someone, you have to trust that someone because you can't choose to, to put your love and your vulnerability on someone unless you can trust that someone. So love and trust go hand in hand when you're talking about agape. That's why Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, listen, he says that faith which works by what? By love. Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. In other words, in order for me to have faith, there must be love. The two things go hand in hand. They're inseparable in a sense. And so for me to love God in the context of agape, in the context of what he's saying here, I love him because I trust him. I trust that he is doing right by me. That when I put my life in his hands, he's trustworthy with that life. I believe him. I hope in him. Now, some people give God love. Oh, Lord, I love you, and I trust you, and my life is yours. I put it in your hand. Now, we all say that, right, when we get saved. Lord, I'm giving you my life. We sing the songs. I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I surrender all. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I mean, it's, it's the backdrop of all of our worship is the surrendering of ourselves to God. And some of us truly do love God and we give ourselves to God in love. We give God love. Others of us give God time. What's the difference? When we give God our love, we're giving him our undivided, unconditional devotion. When we give God time... We're putting him on trial to see if he'll come through for us according as we hope or expect ourselves. Okay, God, I'm going to give you my life and I'm going to see if you're going to bring things to pass the way I think they should fall out. And as long as things are going well, God, then my life is yours. But as soon as I see that things aren't going the way that I hope or think or want, then Lord, I'm going to take my life back again. I'll give you time, Lord, to see if you're going to work things out the way I want you to, and we'll see if you do. What happens when God doesn't do things the way that we think, or when God's definition of good is different than our definition of good? When we're using different dictionaries. God, you're saying that this is good, but I'm saying that this is not good. This is bad. This is pure bad. This can't be good. <laughs> what do we do then? Do we take our life back in our hand? Do we doubt him? Do we blaspheme? Do we draw back? I read about this missionary, Helen Rosevere, who just died last year at the age of 91. She was originally from the United Kingdom, and she, at the age of 28, asked God to call her into the mission field, and he did. And she found herself in the Congo uh, as a missionary to the children and the people that were there. 
And in 1960, um, Congo, there was a civil war that broke out and all of the medical facilities that were established were destroyed. And Helen, this missionary, was among uh, 10 Protestant missionaries who were put under house arrest by the rebel forces. Um, and, and, and then after that, they were imprisoned. And this is her account uh, of what happened when she tried to escape. She said that they found me, they dragged me to my feet, they struck me over the head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, and cursed. And on October 29, 1964, she was brutally raped. She later recounted, On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things needed not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. In this darkness, however, she sensed the Lord saying to her, You asked me when you first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. Well, this is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And she, 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 she eventually received an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me, a mere nobody, in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. She later pointed to God's goodness despite this evil. She said, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me. With outstretched arms of love, it was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding, his comfort so complete. And I suddenly knew, I really knew, that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed and in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back... One has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. She said concerning this experience of being beaten and treated in this way, she said that as she was sitting in the pain of all of it, she heard the whisper of God say to her, Can you thank me for entrusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Let's think about that for just a minute and put it in the context of all of our sufferings and the things that we go through. Do we give God love and say, God, my life is completely yours for you to do what you will, whatever you want with me, no matter what? And you never have the, 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 um, the obligation of telling me why or giving me reason, but Lord, I trust in you completely. Or do we simply say, God, if and as long as things go the way I hope and I want, then I will. But otherwise, Lord, we're going to reconsider the terms of this relationship. He says, 
all things are working together for good to those that love God. That is, to those who place their trust in him for him to do what he wants in their life because they trust that he is perfecting and working out his purposes for his glory and for their good. He also says it's on behalf of, secondly, the called, not just those that love God. And we'll talk about why that, why that is important in a moment. But he says, secondarily, the called. Notice that he doesn't say to those called. He says the called. Do you see that? It's a definite uh, article that it is the called. Now, who are the called? The called is every Christian. See, if he just used the word called, if he said that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, we would say, well, some are called to his purpose and some are not. <laughs> you know, Some have a greater calling and so that this promise applies to them. But some are just Christians. They just get into heaven. They're the general citizens. You know, they're the peasants you know, in eternal things. And this, this promise doesn't apply. But by saying the called, it's all-inclusive, meaning that if you are part of the called, that is, those that are saved by grace through faith, you belong to Jesus Christ, then this promise is extended towards you. All of us are the called, according to his purpose. So it's all-exclusive. You say, okay, well then what is the purpose that I've been called into? If I'm called according to his purpose, what is the purpose of his calling? Well, the purpose of God for us is twofold. Number one, we are all called to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, right? It says that he is the firstborn among many brethren. It says that we are joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together with him. Meaning we are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. He's going to talk more about that in the next few verses that we'll get into in the future weeks. But part of God's purpose in our life is to change us into the image of his son. And that involves suffering because it means taking up our cross and being crucified to our old life. It means yielding and surrendering our will and laying it at the foot of his cross and saying, not my will, but your will be done. And that's not an easy thing to do. It means things are being worked into our life that aren't there by nature. And that's a difficult thing, just like exercise. When we exercise, we're trying to work into our body things that aren't there, right? Muscles, endurance. And there's pain involved in that process. And so there's suffering involved in the purpose of God making us into the image of Christ. The Bible says that God is the potter and that we are the clay. And the Bible says that the clay does not have power over itself, but the potter is the one that masters the clay. The Bible says, shall the thing formed, that's the clay, say to the thing that formed it, that's the potter, why are you making me thus? In other words, God, <laughs> why are you, why the spinning, why the wheel, why the pressure, why the heat? And God is saying, look, you have no business asking that question. I'm the potter. You said that you trusted me and you placed me as clay into my own hands and I'm going to do with you what is best for you and for eternity and for the kingdom. Do you trust me? We're being conformed to the image of Christ and there's pain in the process of it. The other part of his purpose, not the universal of being changed into the image of Christ, but the individual of God's intention for your life to serve his kingdom on this planet. And that is different for each of us. All of us are being conformed to the image. That's universal. 
But there's an individual calling and plan for each one of us that constitutes his purpose for our lives. And part of the reason for the sufferings and difficulties that we go through in this life are to get us in the right place, in the right position, and to be the right kind of people to fulfill that calling that he has for each one of us. And again, that means pain often. As we talk about Abraham, as we talk about Jacob, as we talk about Joseph, we see very clearly where this plays into the context of preparation. It's interesting, the word Christian, we're Christians, right? That's why we're here. The word Christian literally means Christ's man. Christ's man. We belong to him. We're not our own. The Bible says that we've been bought with a price. And so therefore, if we belong to him and we're his person, then it's his business what he wants to do with our lives and in our lives and, and, and you know, with our lives to others. So anything that he wants to do in my life, I am his. And I therefore have no choice in what happens to me if I'm Christ's man. I was talking to a brother the other night about, um, I've told you guys about the tunnel you know, if, you know, a year and a half, um, I, I worked at the World Trade Center when the memorial was being made, and I was in isolation in this tunnel that um, goes underneath uh, the, the memorials around the footprints of the buildings, the Twin Towers that fell down on 9-11. And that year and a half was the hardest year and a half of my life that I ever lived. Living, being in that isolation, God was doing things in me, uh, and there was a, there was a torture that I cannot describe to you uh, that was going on in my life during that time to a point where uh, it was beyond depression, it was beyond despair, it was on the borders of suicidal. To just the, everything, the compound pressure of what was going on in my life during that year and a half uh, period of time that I was there in that tunnel. And I came to a point at, at, towards the end of that time that I said to my immediate supervisor, I said uh, to him that you must... You must give me someone to work, at least work with me in this tunnel because I'm literally going insane in there. And uh, if you, to the point where I said, if you don't, then I have to leave the job. I cannot work here anymore. Can't do this another day. And he said, okay, I'll have someone there to work with you uh, tomorrow. And I said, okay, but if you don't, I'm, I'm not going in the tunnel. It will be my, the, the end right there. I'll, I'll be done. And he said, okay, I promise I'll have somebody there. And I knew inside it ain't happening. So I came to work the next morning, and sure enough, there was nobody there. And I called up, and I said, is there anybody here? And there was no answer. They didn't pick up, you know, and the whole thing. And I just said, fine, I'm leaving. I'm done. I quit. I packed up all my things. And I started to roll my toolbox away, but inside there was this, like, wrestling match. Like, can I really do that? Can I really quit? I mean, you know, is that really the right thing to do? And I didn't really care. You know, I, my, my heart was so kind of hard at that point that I was just kind of like, I don't really care. I'm doing what I want, you know. But I sat down on my tool bag, you know, and I, I opened up and I was reading um, a news uh, article. And there was a link on the news article to Oswald Chambers' devotion for the day, my utmost for his highest. And it was August 10th, I'll never forget. And I clicked on the link and I read Oswald Chambers for that day. And the theme of it was... Uh, being in the will of God and defending his reputation in our circumstances. And the last two sentences of the reading for that day said these words. It says that God puts us in the place where we are going to bring him the most glory. 
And sometimes we are completely incapable of judging where that might be. And when I read those words, I looked up to heaven and I audibly said to God, I said, God, are you telling me that the place where I'm going to bring you the most glory today is isolated in a tunnel where I don't have contact with another human life? And the Holy Spirit whispered back as fast as I could say it, yes, go get in the tunnel. And so I took my tools and I went in the tunnel. And that day, I had some joy. I'm not going to say, from then on, I turned over a new leaf and my attitude turned. It wasn't like that. But that day I had joy, not because of some, you know, outward thing, but because that interaction that I had with God that day just confirmed that I was in his will. That though it was painful, though it was difficult, though it was beyond human reason and understanding as to why I was there or what outcome or purpose there would be, just knowing that I was in his will, there was a peace that accompanied that experience, at least for that day. Thank you, Lord. That's what I needed today. Not what I would ever choose for myself, but part of his purpose and his plan for what he was doing to make me who I needed to be and to know what I needed to know for my future. That was in August. By November of that year, I was on the full-time staff here at the church. I didn't know that was coming. I never would have foreseen that. But he works all things together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. We are Christ's men. Therefore, it's none of our business when we yield and surrender our lives to him what it is that he wants to do with our lives or what he's going to do in preparation of our lives for what he has for our future. That's his business, not our business. We're called according to his purpose and not our own. God never prostitutes a man. A prostitute is someone who is used for the pleasure or purposes of something, someone else with no concern for the object that's being prostituted. That's a prostitute. God does not prostitute people. He doesn't use us for his own purposes without concern for us and leaving us to the side, taking no consideration for for us. He doesn't do that. If Jesus didn't waste the fragments of bread that were left on a mountainside after 5,000 people ate loaves and fishes, and he said to his disciples, leave nothing behind, and they picked up 12 basketfuls of fragments. If Jesus doesn't waste crumbs of bread, he will not waste the life of a human being. He knows what he's doing. The things that he allows and that we go through, he has a purpose behind all of those things. All things are in the hand of God, and he's using those things for his greater good. According to his purpose, when we read those words, what we are saying, what we are agreeing to by receiving this promise is that we're saying, I am yielding up all of my own purpose in faith, believing that your purpose for my life is greater than my own. By saying, yes, God, work all things together for my good. I am saying, God, I submit to your purpose. I want what you want for my life, not what I want for my life. It's interesting that the word purpose that Paul uses there in the Greek language, it's the Greek word prosthesis. And the amazing thing about that word prosthesis, listen, it's the Greek equivalent 
It's the translation of the Hebrew word showbread. Remember in the Old Testament, the priest would bring the showbread, a loaf of bread, and he would place it upon the altar in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And it was an offering to God. In the New Testament, that word is translated purpose. Interesting, isn't it, that it's the same word? Why? Because when I give my life to God, what I'm doing is that I'm presenting it to him, I'm placing it upon the altar for it to belong completely to him. But you know what was interesting about the showbread? Is that it would go stale every week, right? Bread doesn't keep. You leave bread out, what happens? It gets moldy and breeds worms and then it's rotten. It's no good. And so every week the showbread would have to be replaced because it would go bad. And it carries the same idea as it relates to you and I and the surrendering of our purpose to God. It's something that has to be renewed, isn't it? We give our life to God. We say, God, I'm completely yours. Your purpose over mine. Your will be done and not my own. And then what happens is that offering goes stale, doesn't it? A week goes by, troubles come, mold grows. And we need to renew that purpose again and say, God, no, no, no. Your will be done, not my own. Let your purpose be my purpose. So the question as we wind this down and come to a close, at least for this morning, the question that remained in the whole thing is, first of all, does, does this promise always come to pass and always apply to all Christians? And the answer is no. It doesn't. You say, wait, but it's a promise of God. Yeah, yeah, it's a promise of God. But it doesn't always work out. And you know why? Well, yeah, God will still work all things together for good, but maybe not for the individual. I think of King Saul in the Old Testament. At first, his life was consecrated to God. His life was, as it were, the loaf that was upon the altar. Your will be done, God. And he started so well. He was humble. He was majestic. He was strong. He was devoted to God and to the people. But after a time, he was lifted up in his own pride and his own desire for his own kingdom and own agenda became more important to him than God's purpose and God's agenda. And he took his life back into his own hands. He began to walk in disobedience to God. According to the pride and thoughts of his own heart, and ultimately his kingdom was rejected, his posterity was cut off and his life ended early. Because he said, no, God, I don't want your purpose anymore. I want my purpose. And when his purpose became the epicenter of his existence again, he was no longer in God's purpose, and thus all things didn't work together for his future good. He was cut off early. Now, God still used that and trumped it for the glory of his own purposes in his kingdom. But Saul missed out. It's so important, guys, that we trust him and that's why it says to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Because if we don't trust him in love, then ultimately we'll end up taking our life back into our own hands again. And it's a dangerous place to be. The other time, not just when we withdraw the offering like King Saul did, but there was another king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah grew sick. And he knew that the sickness was getting a hold of him and it was going a little deeper. And so he called for the prophet Isaiah and he said, would you pray for me? And do you have a word from the Lord for me? Can you tell me what's going to happen? Am I going to recover or am I going to die? 
And Isaiah said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's time for you to go. This sickness is unto death. You're going to die. And Hezekiah said, no, no, not your will, my will. I don't want to go. This is fun. I'm the king. I don't want to, no. And it says that he wept like a bird before the Lord. He said, no, Lord, I don't want your will. I want my will. I want more time, Lord. I don't. And the Lord said, okay. Okay. And the Lord whispered to Isaiah and he said, go back and tell Hezekiah. Hey, tell him he's got 15 more years. I heard him. And he can have 15 more years. He'll recover from his sickness and live 15 more. And he did. During those 15 years, Hezekiah was lifted up in pride and he showed the king of Babylon all of the treasures that were in the temple of the Lord, which whet the appetite and the covetous heart of the king of Babylon and ultimately sowed the seeds of the invasion that would ultimately bring Israel down. He also sired a son whose name was Manasseh, who turned out to be the most wicked, ungodly, corrupting king that Israel ever had. There were consequences to his lack of surrender. He got his 15 more years, but there were consequences that came from it that God saw that wouldn't be good for him. And there are times that you and I, like Hezekiah, can say, no, God, I'm resisting your will. I don't want what you've got. This is not what I signed up for. I don't want it. God, give me this. Give me this. My grace is sufficient for you. No, God. I don't want just Jesus. I want Jesus plus. And God says, okay, but... The ripple effects of that plus are going to mean something in the future that you can't see right now, that you don't know right now, but I do. It would be better for you to yield to my plan, though you don't understand it and it doesn't make sense to you because you can't see what I see and you don't know what I know. So two questions as we close. As we search and we let this, this passage kind of search us a little bit. Do you know that all things work together for good to those that love God? I know you see it. I see it. We see it. But do you know it? Do you believe it? Whatever circumstance you find yourself in this morning... Whatever bit of suffering, whatever trial, whatever thing in your life that you would change right now if you could, do you believe that that is a father-filtered, God-ordained, God-allowed circumstance in your life right now that is working together for your future good and his greater glory? Do you really believe that? There's a way that you can know, and here's how it is. Do you have peace about those circumstances? Or do they cause you anxiety? It's a very simple question. Are you anxious about those things? Or do you have peace with those things? Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, God will keep him in perfect peace 
whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. If I know this, if I believe this, that all things are working together for good, then I can have peace even though I have circumstances that are extremely difficult or uncomfortable or that I really hate and don't like. If I'm anxious and worried about it, then what I'm doing in my mind is I'm taking those things into my own hands. The reason why there's anxiousness and worry is because I can do nothing about it. I have no power to do it, and thus the check engine light is on, and I'm all messed up inside. Am I anxious or am I worried about those things? Am I worshiping in my own strength? Listen, to resist the circumstances that God has brought into my life at any given time, or to fight against them is going to result in a constant internal war. I'm constantly battling. Why is this happening? God, what are you doing? What's going on in this whole thing? To embrace the circumstances that God has brought into my life is to rest, to know that he is good and that he's in control and that this isn't outside of his hand. And it's to see God work in the situation. So do you know it? Second question is this. Let it search you this morning. Let's say that after the study, you could come up to me and you could say, Pastor, I'd like you to pray for this situation. That God would heal this or God would resolve this or that God would provide this or that God would change whatever, whatever it is. Would you pray that God would just take care of this? And I said to you, okay, I'm going to pray. And there is a 100% guarantee that when I say amen, God is going to do what you're asking. 100%. It's going to happen. As soon as I say amen. But so also are the ripple effects of having that prayer answered. It's going to play out in the future as though those trials, circumstances, or difficulties, or whatever it is, that you, that's going to play out as well. Do you still want me to pray for it? Or would you rather have me pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? See, God sees beyond what we can see. He knows way beyond what we could know. And if he's allowed any circumstance in my life, no matter what it is, it falls under the banner of all things. And he's using all things as he's working them together for my future good and his greater glory. And for those things to be non-existent or to change means that the future that those things are shaping is going to change as well. And so my best position is not to say, God, I hate this, or God, I wish you would change this, but it's to say, God, you know, and I love you enough to trust you and know that you love me enough that you know what you're doing. And I rest in that. We know that all things 
work together for good to those that love God, to them that are the called, according to his purpose. May God give us wisdom.